Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Today I'm speaking to Araneo Caveras, uh, who's a grad student at the Princeton University, and we will be talking about causality. Araneo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Hi, Roman. I think most people have an intuitive understanding of what causality means, uh, but I don't know how, how reliable that intuitive understanding is. And uh, Famously, very smart people like Carl Pearson got it wrong. Uh, so, yeah, g give us some explanation or maybe intuition for what, what causality is and how we treat it in the 21st century. Yeah, so at a very intuitive level, the idea of causality is to understand uh, mechanistic relationships between variables. So... It's trying to get beyond just correlation, the observation that two variables vary uh, with each other. But rather, it's about uh, asking questions like, if I were to change this variable, would it change this other variable? Um, and so that's the intuitive idea. Of course, that's all just words, right? And it's hard to um, sort of approach a really intuitive, vague idea like that with mathematics when you have... Uh, just words. Why is it like, of course, we all heard that correlation does not imply causation, but uh, it is often hard to, to keep that in mind, right? If, if we analyze some data and we see that, uh, you know, people who smoke get cancer or people who keep a certain diet, they uh, lose weight, for example. What we often say is that, you know, X is associated with Y which is like mm -hmm. the default word scientists use these days, just X is associated with Y. But of course, intuitively, we uh, like it's, it's very hard not to draw a causal connection between them, right? It's very hard because this association or correlation is such an abstract thing that uh, whenever we hear association, like the only way we can picture it is by drawing this causal arrow from x to y or from y to x, whatever is more intuitive for us. Can you remind us why this doesn't work? Yeah, I guess the easiest, so whenever anybody talks about causality, maybe the first thing that they say is what causality isn't. And uh, maybe the most memorable catchphrase is that correlation does not imply causation. And I think the best way to sort of nail that in your mind is just through kind of intuitive examples. So, so to give an example of why correlation doesn't imply causation. Um, there's a correlation between Dorito consumption and life expectancy. Um, and this is a pretty solid correlation, but it's not the case that Dorito consumption actually causes you to live longer. In fact, most people believe that Doritos are pretty unhealthy things to eat. The thing that makes it correlated with life expectancy is simply that Doritos are consumed in more affluent, developed countries, which... Um, the people are better off, they have better health care, they have better uh, diets on average. And so there's this spurious correlation. Um, so just thinking about examples like, like this, where you could explain away uh, spurious correlations between two variables by the influence of a third variable, Z, say, um, in this case, the sort of affluence of a, of a, of a country or a locale. Um, gives you an idea of why, in general, you can't discern causation from correlation. The inverse is also false. So it's also not true that 
causation implies correlation, right? And this is also, this is actually a common misunderstanding. So as an example of that, assume that in fact, and this is not true, this is just sort of a hypothetical example. Assume that in fact, avocados are bad for your health, you know, in the sense that avocados have some some oil that maybe clogs up your your arteries and causes you to have a heart attack. I know nothing about heart attacks, so take all of that with a grain of salt. But assume that that's true, right? However, it could be the case that people who are eating avocados, they're also health nuts. And because they're, in addition to eating avocados, they're also doing all of these other things like exercising, eating lots of fruits and vegetables that in spite of their eating, eating avocados uh, actually improves their heart health. So it could be the case that in this observed population, there is absolutely no correlation between avocado consumption and uh, heart disease, although there is an actual causal relationship between avocados and heart disease. So neither implication is true. It's not true that correlation implies causation. It's not true that causation implies correlation. They're in fact two pretty separate notions. Um, and it's important to realize that they're separate because often the goals of your analysis are are uh, for a causal purpose or for a um, non-causal purpose. That's that's a great example with, with avocados. I'm glad <laughs> you brought that up because if in one direction we are all accustomed to, to the fact that correlation does not imply causation and so if you try to publish a paper where you say, well, like X is associated with Y, therefore you know, X causes Y, then uh, hopefully you'll get some pushback from the reviewers. But if mm -hmm. you claim the opposite, right? Like we found no link and therefore- Or we found no association, therefore there's no causation, for yeah, instance. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think it's it's very hard to, to push back on, on that. And uh, then there's the question like, if this doesn't work, then how are you supposed to to establish the the absence of causation? Because the um, if the presence of causation can be established experimentally, you just change one thing and, and observe the other thing. The absence of causation could be that well, maybe it doesn't cause under this environment, but under another environment, it may be causal or something like that. Yeah, the absence of causation is definitely a more difficult thing to prove than causation itself in circum certain circumstances, like the experimental setting you're describing, or if you are able to do a randomized experiment. Do you have any like practical advice? How, how should people go about establishing causation or, or the absence of causation? Of course, the under many circumstances, the ideal is a randomized trial. Mm -hmm. uh, and even even there, you have to be careful about what you randomize, how you randomize, what you control for. There is a great uh, book, a uh, recent book by Judea Pearl, who's the, one of the fathers of uh, causal inference. Uh, it's called The Book of Why, where he tackles a lot of these interesting questions. But um, apart from uh, like a direct manipulation which is often not practical in sciences how uh, like for, for example take climate change right how are we supposed to establish the causality in, in the climate science 
if we cannot simply shut down all the plants for for a couple of years? Uh, what do we do then? Yeah, so there are people all across the spectrum in terms of how optimistic they are about getting at causal relationships from observable data alone. And Judea Pearl is probably on one side of that spectrum where he thinks it's totally possible. Um, you have to assume some things about the underlying model, but then often we can convince ourselves that those assumptions are right and then apply his machinery. So he's on one side of the spectrum. And to, to elaborate a, a little bit so that people understand, so the Judea Pearl's position is that uh, there are certain causal assumptions that you can make, uh, spe specifically which things are uh, sort of not causing each other. The primitive there is not causality, but the, actually the, the absence of causality. And if, if you know that certain things do not affect other things and they're sort of conditionally independent, uh, then uh, you can build these models that can tell you something about, about the world. But these uh, causal assumptions, they're not, well, they can be refuted, right? So they can be tested in, in some sense. Uh, some of them can and some of them can't. So some of the causal assumptions you can you, you can test if there's these conditional independence relationships that uh, are required for you to make your causal statement. And those conditional independence statements have to do with observed random variables. And so while testing for independence is actually a very hard thing to do in general, in theory, you could test for independence relationships between observable variables. However, there's also assumptions about um that that are kind of things that you have to take on faith um mm -hmm. that you can't actually uh that you can't actually test beforehand one of the most notable ones to me is that the model itself is arranged as a directed acyclic graph um so there are a lot of situations in which you might not assume that there are no cycles in your causal graph for instance if there's feedback between variables a causes b b causes c and then C also, in turn, influences A, causes A. Uh, these kinds of things are not allowed in the sort of classical directed acyclic graph setup. Um, and then there are also other more technical assumptions that are sort of fundamentally not testable. In in defense of DAGs, though, like in some scenarios, like you said, what are you going to do? You can't randomize. Uh, you can't randomize um, a lot of variables. For instance, in smoking and lung cancer, you can't randomize smoking. That's just unethical, right? Um, and so what else are you going to do? You make these assumptions that you can't really test. And then uh, uh, on the faith that they're true, you can make these causal claims. Uh, so there's that one end of the spectrum, which is of the opinion that you can make causal causal relationships from observed data. Well, with, uh, with smoking, what you could do, what could be ethical... Uh, mm -hmm. is that, of course, you cannot force people to smoke, but mm -hmm. you can approach some people who already smoke and like try to persuade them to quit smoking. Mm -hmm. And and that would be your randomization. wouldn't be perfect. So this will be more like an instrumental variable or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So essentially, I'm, I'm more of the mindset that in order to do causal inference, you need some form of randomization. That can be a form of experimental randomization where you're actually able to randomize something. For example, in your in your example, you can't just flip a coin and force somebody to smoke or force somebody not to smoke. But perhaps you can flip a coin and either encourage somebody to quit smoking if it lands heads or 
not intervene at all if it lands tails. Um, that's that's one form of randomization, which, um, again, these instrumental variable models require some additional assumptions uh, to be able to make the final causal inference that you're interested in, which is the relationship between smoking and lung cancer, not the relationship between suggesting to smoke and lung cancer. But at least there's some form of randomization. And then there are other sort of forms of randomizations that are not experimental, but occur in nature. So there's one one notable example, which is often misused, but which is a, a good example nonetheless, is that uh, genes have a source of randomization in that at the time of gamete formation, there's these meiotic processes uh, of segregation and recombination that are a source of randomization that t- comes before any sort of variable that you're interested in down the road. Now, that's not to say that you can apply this idea directly to this case, right? There's a lot of caveats, but it, uh, and, and it's actually something that I'm interested in studying myself. Like, when can you use uh, natural sources of genetic variation to get at causal inferences? But the point is that sometimes you can use natural sources of randomization. Another sort of natural source of randomization that people often use is, um, is temperature. Like in a given, in a given locale, say you're, you're wanting to study the effect of, um, of, of, uh, of X on Y. You can't randomize X, but temperature is sort of fluctuating randomly on, on any given day. It's up a degree here. It's down a degree here. And you expect that randomization is happening independent of everything else. So you can use temperature sometimes as an instrument for getting at the relationship between X and Y. So sometimes there are sources of natural randomization that you can use. Uh, other, ideally, you have experimental forms of randomization. Um, and aside from that, there's some things that you have to take on faith if you want to get at causal inference from observational studies. And you mentioned uh, something curious that uh, the Mendelian randomization is often misused. Do you have any uh, bad examples of that? Um, yeah, so, so the most naive approach that you could take is that, yes, there's this meiotic process that happens. Say you want to understand which genes are influencing height, for instance. The most naive approach you could take is that the genes that make up somebody's genomes are determined by this meiotic process uh, that happens before anything else that's going to influence the kid's height. There's these recombination events, there's segregation that happens, uh, and so the kid's genomes are determined by a sort of random process. Therefore, if there's any gene that's associated with height in the population, we can say that that gene is causal for height. So that's Mm -hmm. the incorrect approach to take, right? (laughs) Uh, that's, that's, uh, a tempting approach to take, but it's incorrect. And it's incorrect because the population of people that you're going to eventually be studying, these, uh, these kids, they come from a structured population. What's stru- but what I mean by structured is that the allele frequencies at different loci in the genome, uh, vary depending on which population you're from. Basically, that's what's called the, um, the linkage disequilibrium, right? Where uh... yeah, exactly. There could be so there 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 are genes that could be in linkage disequilibrium that are associated with genes that cause other ones. Yeah, and so I take it that uh, you're not uh, a um, a fan of uh, 
of the directed cyclic graph models for, for, for causality. So what is the alternative to, to directed cyclic graphs? Um, it's not that I'm a, not a fan of the directed acyclic graph model in and of itself. Um, and like I said, in some cases, uh, it, the basic point of directed acyclic graphs is to get a causality from observed data alone. And in some cases, you can't do anything about it. You're only going to be able to deal with the observed data. And so you do the best that you can. I would disagree. I would push back on that a bit. Because even if you're doing some interventions, the the directed acyclic graph actually tells you, for example, what you can, where you can intervene, where you cannot intervene. So if you are not able to intervene directly at the node whose causality you're trying to establish, the model will tell you, okay, if you intervene here, that will still give you the data to, uh, to infer causality. But if you intervene here, that will actually be wrong because if there was a causality by intervening here, you will destroy that. You'll interfere with that. Yeah, and and also I, uh, you know, directed acyclic graphs is not my like my expertise, but I do draw directed acyclic graphs all the time when I'm just trying to wrap my head around a problem, and I do think about deseparation all the time because often it's not clear which variables are conditionally independent of other ones. Um, and so they're very, very useful models. It's just not my expertise. And some of the things that are used, that are done with those models, that in particular getting at causal effects from observational data alone, um, require some assumptions that, you know, I'm often not comfortable making. Okay. Yeah. Right. So what was the alternative? So the alternative is a pretty pessimistic view, I guess, <laughs> is that, and it's not a popular one, which is that often you you can't get a causality from observa observational data alone. There's sort of two distinct things. There's, there's a model, there's different frameworks for causality, there's the potential outcomes framework of causality, and there's directed acyclic graph model of causality. And these two models are actually in some sense equivalent. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's, so that's one thing. On the one hand, you have a model, and on the other hand, you have the goals of your analysis, right? And the two camps are uh, randomization and uh, observational data. So both models can be used to understand either the experimental setting when you have randomization. As you said, you can use directed acyclic graphs to give you some intuition about what you can randomize in even a randomized setting. Uh, or they can be used to get at causal inference from observational data. Um, it just tends to be the case that the community of people who are using directed acyclic graphs uh, tend to be more focused on getting at causality from observational data alone. It's not particularly the model per se. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's mostly, it's more more to me what I am skeptical of is the the goal of getting at causality from observational data alone. And I'm not saying that that's a, a bad goal. Sometimes you have to do it, but the assumptions are often very subtle especially when there's no obvious form of natural randomization. And uh, sometimes you have to take things on faith. And uh, in your dichotomy of um, inferring from the observed data versus uh, randomizing, where would the instrumental variables uh, fall? And, and maybe you can explain a bit what, what those are. Uh, I guess they'd fall somewhere in the middle. <laughs> And instrumental variables, basically what you're trying to do is understand 
uh, relationship between x and y, but you can't randomize x. So instead, you randomize something else. And from the, the experimental randomization that you are inducing through randomizing this third variable, say z, you try to get at um, the relationship between x and y that you originally wanted. Um, there are still some assumptions that you have to make to get at the relationship between x and y, even when you have this, this natural randomization, or sorry, this uh, proxy for randomizing x. Um, so in that sense, it's somewhere in between the two sort of worlds. You have, on the one hand, this thing that you're randomizing, but then you have ultimately a relationship that you're trying to get at where you didn't randomize either thing. So this potential outcomes framework, mm -hmm. uh, can you uh, introduce us to it? Yeah, so um, so the potential outcomes framework, the idea is that, um, so I guess it's most simply stated with a binary outcome. So let's say that we're trying to understand the relationship between smoking and cancer. Smoking we'll call X uh, and cancer we'll call Y. So you either smoke or you don't smoke. X can be zero or one. So the idea of the potential, potential outcomes framework is that there are these variables called potential outcomes, which are only partially observed. So in this example, we have two potential outcomes, uh, which I'll call y0 and y1. y0 can be described as uh, the random variable describing cancer had the person not smoked. y1 is did the person have cancer describes cancer had the person smoked. And importantly, the random variable y0 and y1 are not the same as y conditional on x equals 0 and y conditional on x being 1. So you have these potential outcomes that are partially observable. And in particular, the one that you observe corresponds to the value of x that was actually observed. So if the person actually did not smoke, then what you observe is y0. If the person actually did smoke, then what you observe is y1. And sort of what the fundamental problem of causal inference, and that's actually what people have called it, is the fundamental problem of causal inference, is that what you really want to get at is, is there a difference between the random variables y0 and y1? However, for any particular individual, you only observe either y0 or y1. You can't, for instance, observe if the person got cancer had they not smoked, if the person, in fact, did smoke. So this is the, the big problem. So how do you do causal inference at all if you can't observe y sub 0 or y sub 1 um, for any individual? And the answer is that you perform randomization. So when you perform randomization, although you, can't, you still can't observe y sub 0 or y sub 1 for any particular individual, what you can say, and this is something that I describe in the paper, is that you can get the distribution of y0 and y1 from the distribution of the conditional random variable y given x equals 0 and y given x equals 1, only when you can randomize x. So, And then once you observe the distribution of these two random variables, which now you can actually compute from the observed data given that you did randomize x, then you compare the distributions, and if they're different, then there's a causal, there's a causal relationship. And so far, it sounds very similar to actually to the uh, DAG models where uh, you have this do notation. So your yeah. y sub zero is essentially y of uh, what's it called, like y given do x or do x equals zero or something like that. Yeah, I can't remember exa the exact notation either, but 
Yeah, yeah, that's true. And uh, as I had mentioned earlier, it's not that there's this big war between the two models. In fact, in a lot of cases, they're actually equivalent. So, so this potential outcomes framework, it has existed for, for a while, right? Uh, but uh, in your paper, you suggest sort of a variation on it, right? What was, what's the idea? What's the innovation here? Yeah, so, so to be clear, there's not formally any innovation in the paper. Uh, so we took the potential outcomes framework, which is an idea that existed for a long time. And the potential outcomes framework is all often described in the language of probability. Well, it always has been described in the language of probability. In turn, probability theory uh, is expressed in the language of measure theory um, in sort of more formal mathematical communities. That's the thought of as the proper language of, of probability theory. So implicitly, you could say that the foundation of the potential outcomes framework is measure theory. But as far as we knew before writing this paper, uh, this connection wasn't really made explicit. And in fact, when I was initially thinking about it, uh, the connection was kind of unclear. So the basic idea for people who don't have a background in in uh, measure theoretic probability, just to give you a very, very high level idea of what it is, the idea is that you have uh, some sample space, which is often called omega. And the randomness occurs by selecting random elements of this sample space omega. Now, what random variables are is their functions from these randomly sampled elements of omega to the real numbers. When you have two random variables, x and y, uh, in the measure theoretic framework, you can think of them as both being functions from omega to the real numbers. So if you were to draw an intuitive sort of picture of what the measure theoretic framework, how the measure theoretic framework deals with two random variables, you could draw omega and then an arrow going to x and an arrow going to y, right? So this is kind of a intuitively hard thing to to swallow if you're trying to get a causality. Because what you yeah. want to know, what you want to know is does x cause y? That that means does fiddling with x, does changing x manually change the value of y? However, from the from the measure theoretic framework of probability theory, x and y are both quote unquote caused by the same thing omega. It doesn't make any sense that changing x would change y. They're both downstream of omega. And they're both sort of on separate paths. Right. In uh, in the words of Judea Pearl, if you define something just based on the joint distribution of the two variables, which which is what you describe, like the mm -hmm. how x and y are, are jointly distributed on the same probability space, that's the definition of non-causal relationship. So causal relationship is anything that's above or, or external to their joint distribution. Yeah, in a sense. So... There can be a causal relationship between two random variables and they have like a joint distribution, but they're sort of separate separate notions. Yeah. Right. So yeah, so so that was the initial sort of quandary for me was that uh, it seems like that it, the basic idea at play in measure theoretic probability is very different from the causal intuition um, that one naturally has. So basically what I what I did in the or what what we did in the paper was to uh, describe the potential outcomes framework in the language of measure, measure theory and probability spaces. So how do we reconcile this 
sort of at least at least initially the the seeming tension between the two and and the way you do that it's uh sort of counterintuitive at, at first but it also feels i don't know um it feels a bit like cheating because you essentially introduce like an extra extra arguments to that function extra variables right because you, um your your random variable let's say y is now no longer just a function of omega but it's also a function of like what value x took or, or what value you set x to that's this the idea to introduce like several copies of, of y which is another way you can think about it is essentially you say y is no longer a function of omega but it's a function of omega and x yeah so so the simplest uh scenario is when x is binary right so let's just uh think about when x is zero or one so when x is zero and one there are four variables at play there's x there's y those are the two observed variables then there's also y zero and y one those are the two potential outcome variables so you have four variables all on a probability space right x y zero and y one you can just think of as regular random variables. In fact, they're all random variables. They're all regular, well-defined random variables, but x, y0, and y1, there's nothing very special about them at all. They're just random variables defined on the probability space. y, however, is a function of x, y0, and y1, which is also a well-defined random variable. I mean, remember, if you have a random variable x and you have a random variable y, for instance, x times y is still a random variable, right? If you take functions of random variables, it's still a well-defined random variable. So the only sort of uh, like intuitive leap is that y is now a function of these three random variables. So in, in itself, it is a random variable where y is equal to y sub zero times the indicator that x is actually zero plus y one times the indicator that x is one. And this is exactly what the potential outcomes framework is. Uh, this isn't an innovation on our end. It's just uh, the the contribution on our end is just to observe that all of these things are living on the same probability space. And so, in 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 the classical uh, potential outcomes framework, uh, do they not consider them as variables on the same probability space? How how did they formalize that? Now, like modern sort of treatments of potential outcomes random variables, they're absolutely thinking of the potential outcome random variables as random variables. They just didn't, you know describe them on the on the probability space itself. The earliest sort of descriptions of potential outcome random variables didn't actually think of them as random variables. They thought of them as parameters. They thought of a, a collection of of units, a collection of people, say, each of whom had a value y sub zero and y sub one, which was thought of as a fixed value. Uh, so you could think of this as a, a two-column table, right? Each person is a row. And each person has two values, y sub 0 or y sub 1, and you observe exactly one of them. And what they initially described as uh, they had sort of two notions. One was an individual causal effect, and that was if the values on those two columns were different, then there was an individual causal effect. And then an average causal effect was the average of all of those differences. Initially, they didn't actually treat them as, as full-on random variables. They treated them as like fixed, fixed constants. Which, you know, formally are also random variables. <laughs> They're just trivial ones. A random variable that takes omega to a single number is still a random variable. Right. 
So you you mentioned a couple of times that uh, the the potential outcomes framework and the DAG framework they're in some sense equivalent. So in in what in what sense are they equivalent? And how how would you convert between the two? Um. So yeah, this isn't something that I was necessarily prepared prepared to talk about, and I'm not going to give a super eloquent answer. However, <laughs> the person who did this was uh, was uh, Thomas Richardson. And he wrote about how uh, the potential outcomes framework and the the uh, DAG frameworks could be, in some sense, equivalent. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, they're not exactly equivalent. They're models that you can express in potential outcomes that you can't express in DAGs. For instance, you can express uh, feedback. You can express two random variables, X and Y, for which X causes Y and Y causes X, right? That's a pretty natural thing to express in terms of potential outcomes. Um, but DAGs... That, that will be prolonged in time, right? So like the present value of X affects the future value of Y? Um, not necessarily. Even, even uh, I mean, it's a little bit trippy, but at the in the potential outcomes framework, you could simply have um, Y having two... So Y and X could be binary. And then Y has two potential outcomes, Y sub zero and Y sub one. X is causal for Y if Y sub zero is different from Y sub one. And then X could also have two potential outcomes, X sub zero and X sub one, corresponding to the two values that Y can take. And then X, Y is causal for X if, uh, if X sub zero and X sub one are different. Okay, I, 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 can, I, can, I can sort of see how, how that might work. So like you have two switches and they're linked. And yeah, when you instance. switch one one of them, the other one automatically follows. Or or another example that comes to mind is like in quantum entanglement, like when the two particles have the identical spin, but the spin is not known. It's random, but it's the same, but you, you cannot directly manipulate it. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, that's a great example, actually. Yeah. So yeah, that's a natural thing to describe in, in potential outcomes. And, uh, you know, formally in the DAG framework that wouldn't be an allowable model. I should say, however, people, you know, it's not it's not news to the DAG community, right? People have thought about uh, extending DAGs to uh, allow cycles. I'm not entirely sure how far that has gone, but I know that that's a that's an effort as well. Anything else you you wanted to talk about in in connection with the paper? I am not really in the connection of the paper. I guess like. So there's this distinction between causality and correlation. Uh, but this distinction is actually important, right? Because depending on what your goals are, you might want to know something causal or you might want to know something that just has to do with correlation or prediction. So for instance, if you um, are interested in the stock market, say, and you're trying to make money by predicting the stocks, you don't actually need to know which factors are causing the stock to go up or causing the stock to go down. If you did, that would be great. But even if you just know predictors of the stock, uh, predictors of the stock going up or predictors of the stock going down, that's also very useful information for you. Likewise, in the genetic setting, if you're trying to make a screen or something, you're trying to predict whether or not somebody is at risk for some particular type of disease. Even if in your screen you involve some genes, some SNPs that aren't actually causing the disease, uh, but in fact predict, they're actually good predictors of you having the disease, and perhaps it's because they're uh, proxies for you being a member of a particular community for which that disease is uh, higher risk, then that's still useful information. Causal inference, on the other hand, is interested 
what you might need causal inference for, on the other hand, is when you're trying to, A, understand how something works. So if you want to understand how the disease itself works, you might want to know which genes are actually driving that disease so that you can design a drug that uh, can target those genes, for instance. Or if you want to make an intervention, so say you want to make a policy, you want to legalize uh, smoking, for instance, um, it won't get you very far just by claiming that smoking and lung cancer are correlated because you actually want to claim that if you make people stop smoking, you're going to drive down the rates of lung cancer. So when you're trying to understand some sort of scientific question or when you're trying to make an intervention, uh, that's when you're really asking causal questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree that just pure correlation or association sometimes makes sense, but it also seems to me that often it's a, it's a cop-out because if you cannot establish causation, well, you, you have to justify your work somehow, right? So, so you say, oh, well, at least it can be used as a biomarker, but everyone understands that, uh, you know, it would be much, much more um, useful to actually cure the disease rather than simply predict the disease. And that's, mm -hmm. that's what we're really after. Uh, but, uh, if you, if you cannot do that, then you, you call it a biomarker and, and you justify it this way. Yeah, I could see that. I've never been in the position of making that pitch, but I could see that being, I could see but that. In being general, true. do you think that, uh, the causal inference is underrated nowadays? Because, uh, I think you can take a whole undergraduate statistics course and maybe not hear the word causality even once, or maybe hear it just in the context of, you know, correlation does not imply causation, but then the rest of the course is actually devoted to correlation and not a single word of how it infer causation. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. I mean, on the one hand, um, I don't think I've ever seen a course at a university on causal inference, like specifically. Um, in that sense, it's maybe a hole um, in the education. That being said, I think most people getting uh, studying statistics will have a pretty solid idea of the difference between correlation and causation. But yeah, there's no specific sort of training in causality in, in university courses. On the other hand, I would say in, in research and in industry, people are getting really, really interested in causality. Um, I mean, I was just at uh, NeurIPS this past year, and there was a whole causal inference um, mini conference within the bigger conference. Uh, a lot of people doing a ton of work. Um, also, in industry, randomized experiments are actually becoming really, really in vogue <laughs> because... You have all of these tech companies with websites who now actually have the ability to do large-scale uh, randomization. Facebook, for instance. Anybody who's on Facebook is uh, uh, taking part in many, many experiments at the same time. Most of the ex experiments are uh, not changing the world. I mean, they're, they're largely for ads. They're like, do you, know, do you want the ad to have a blue background or a red background? And which one's going to generate more clicks. And so they randomize some people to blue, they randomize some people to red, and then they uh, look at the results. But, you know, now you're, you're randomizing many, many things at the same time. And there's some subtle questions 
um, about what are sort of valid forms of randomization, because sometimes you can't uh, randomize at the user level specifically. You might just be able to randomize, uh, I don't know, a, a router or, or, or a IP address or something like that. Um, so there are all of these questions about experimental design, which are about causal inference at the heart of it, happening in all of these sort of tech industries now that are doing massively paralleled randomized experiments on all of their users. So on the one hand, yeah, I think maybe university courses haven't caught up, but there's definitely, I would say, an acceleration of interest both in industry and in research and causal inference right now. Irineo, um, it was uh, interesting to talk to you and thanks for coming. Thanks a lot. It was great to talk to you, Roman.